So we're going to continue this morning in this series we started at the beginning of the year. We started talking about the soul. We've been talking about um, the anatomy of the soul. We talked about how we are made up as human beings. What is the, the, the structure of what it means to be a human being. We've talked about the needs of a soul. What the soul actually desires and is longing for. Um, we, we, last week began to shift the conversation to really say, okay, so what if um, you have found yourself identifying as someone who has some soul sickness. Like maybe you have raised the red flag during this series. Maybe something we've talked about or something else going on in life has caused you to recognize that there's some sort of problem. We've now moved to a part of the series where we're looking at the renewal of the soul. We're talking about how we renew our souls, how we do things to get our souls back to a healthy place. And if you were here last week, you know that I gave you three things that we sort of began with some broad brushstrokes of a way to, to really begin to think about renewing our own souls. The first one I talked about was that we have a posture of care. Um, we, we talked about this idea of understanding that the soul is fragile, and if the soul is fragile, if we understand the fragility of it, then we're going to approach the soul with an attitude of care. We start thinking through, how do I make intentional decisions to do the right things so that the soul is actually nurtured and cared for? So that's really where the renewal begins, is realizing this soul can get broken. And then secondly, last week, we began to talk about the need for us to protect our soul, that if our soul is fragile then we need to see that there are things out in our culture, there are experiences we have, there are decisions that we make that actually damage our soul. And so we talked about the need for us to protect, to take on a protective stance in order for us to heal our souls. And then finally, and I think this is really critical that we talk about this, finally last week I ended with this idea that we need our soul to be centered in Christ. That the renewal of our soul does not happen if the self continues to be at the center. If we continue to be self-centered, then soul renewal will never take place. And so last week we talked about the idea of us centering in the gospel, centering our lives in Christ. Now, this week I want to move and I want to give you three more things. In the same way that those things got more specific, I want to continue to get more specific this week and I want to give you three more insights for this journey of renewing our soul. Um, uh, last week was three, this week was three. There's um, something with preachers and the number three uh, we like things to come in threes. I think that's the first sign you're called to preach is you just think about everything in three points. So, um, so I want to give you three things, but, but, but in order to do that, I actually want to root us in a particular passage of Scripture, and I want to explain why. Um, first of all, it's one of the few Scriptures that uses the word renew, and, uh, and I think anytime you see that, we're talking about renewal, it's probably a good place to start. But secondly, and this is more important, the passage that we're looking at today was actually delivered to or it entered a particular cultural moment that was particularly relevant for us or is particularly relevant for us today because it was very similar to the cultural moment that we find ourselves in now. Um, this part that we're going to look at, this scripture we're going to look at today was written to a group of people who were remarkably similar to us. Their society, their culture, the conditions of that culture, the pressures of that culture, the emotions, the, the tensions, all of the things that it looked like to live as a person in that culture are very similar to the, to the way it feels to be in our culture today. And it was a culture that was broken. Now, I want to explain something about people also in this whole process. I want to explain something about them, and I want to explain something about us. Very few human beings live their lives with a well-understood, clearly articulated, philosophical worldview. Um, that's just not the case. Most people, they, they sort of express their worldview 
intuitively. They don't wake up in the morning and say, oh, here's my worldview, and here's all the decisions I'm going to make today according to that worldview. You just sort of live haphazardly, and it's a reflection of the culture that you live in. It's not examined. It's not planned out. It's just sort of this cultural ideal that happens because you live in a culture, and you just begin to live this thing out really without much attention. Um, This is true of people today, and it's true of the people that we're reading about today in this particular scripture. So this group of people that we're looking at, they had pursued their cultural ideals. They had taken their cultural worldview, and they had run it to its logical end, and essentially they came up wanting. Their, Their souls were in need of renewal. And so the gospel comes to this group of people. The message of Jesus comes with life, and it was like water to a thirsty traveler. It was suddenly this refreshing thing. But there was this issue for them, this difficulty in learning, how do I actually lean into this life of flourishing that's been promised in Christ? How do I actually experience this life of purpose that seems to be found in Christ? How do I do that when I'm in the middle of a cultural reality that is ultimately defining how people live? In other words, how do I break the habits? How do I break the rhythms, the patterns that's disintegrating my soul and actually lean into what Jesus seems to be offering us? So the Apostle Paul writes them a letter, and this letter is called Romans, and it's in your New Testament. If you have a Bible, I want you to open to it. We're going to look at the the latter part of it, Romans chapter 12. We're going to look at a couple of verses there. And while you're turning there, I want to also point something else out that I think is critical for us to understand. Um, we need to understand that many of the authors or the architects of the Enlightenment saw Christianity as the center of the demise of Western culture. This is, this is super critical for us to get today because we live in a post-Enlightenment. We live in a, a, a culture that's influenced by the Enlightenment. You need to understand that the architects and the authors of the Enlightenment, they saw Christianity as the, the center of the demise of Western culture. In other, in other words, they, they looked back and they said, there's this moment in which Christianity penetrated the Roman Empire in particular, and its spread was so deep and so broad that it actually rewired the way that culture existed at that, in that day and age. And so, this is so critical to get, the Enlightenment was a progressive agenda to go backwards, if that's possible. It was an effort to revert to the secular that existed previous to Christianity entering the Western world. Uh, a renaissance, if you will. The word renaissance is another word for revival. It was, uh, it was a revival that would undo the changes that Christianity brought and it would rebirth the secular and what previously existed before it. That was the idea behind the Enlightenment. That was at the core of the author's thoughts and ideas. And by the way, it worked. It worked. may have taken a couple hundred years, but we are essentially back. We are right where we started. And what's interesting about the people in Rome, that's true of us now in this post-enlightenment era, is that people there, just like people today, were doubting the results of their cultural worldview. They were experiencing this sort of internal revolt. They were starting to say, well, there has to be more to life than this. This can't be all that there is. All of these things are an expression of a soul that says there's an incongruency with the way I'm living and the way I was designed. There's this expression There's a crisis, both personally and publicly. And the same is true for us. 
So we look at our culture today and we see the rise of anxiety, we see the epidemic of loneliness, we see the persistence of discrimination and hatred, uh, we see the growth of addictions, we see the decrease in overall quality of life for Americans for the first time in a very long time. And you have to ask the question, is this working? Is this worldview working? We've now experienced this cycle of human history that, ironically enough, um, now the words of this Jewish teacher in the first century have just as much application in this century as they did then. So I want us to read together because these words, they were revolutionary then. When these people in Rome heard this, it was breaking them out of their cultural worldview and they were now seeing things differently. I want us to read these things and hear them Essentially like we're hearing them for the first time. I know we're about to read some scriptures that for many of you in the room, this is really familiar territory. You've heard these before. You're going to just know them as soon as I start reading them. And yet what I challenge you to do is just listen to how revolutionary they actually are. Romans chapter 12 verse 1. Paul writes the church at Rome and says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Now, I want you to notice something that's often missed when this passage is talked about in church. Um, frequently, this leads to a teaching on sacrifice, which, by the way, is here. Becoming a living sacrifice, that itself is revolutionary thinking. But it's not the only thing that's revolutionary that's happening here, and oftentimes we skip this. To this audience, this passage made a connection for them that their cultural culture had failed to realize. This makes a connection that they'd never understood before. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies. Your body. So whatever this thing is that God is doing, it involves your body, which means there's a connection. There's a connection between the physical and the spiritual. These two things merge together. And this information was a revelation then, and I believe it's a revelation today. Your body is spiritual. That's new information. See, see we live in a day and age which, ironically, like that day and age, that enables us to talk about ideas. We can hold beliefs. There are, there are principles that we can speak about, and then simultaneously those things can have zero bearing on how we actually live our lives. Our culture rarely holds us accountable for these things. We can believe something, but then we can walk something out completely different, and nobody really calls us on this because our culture is okay with it. We've created this sort of dichotomy or dualism where I'm allowed to believe certain things, but then live another way, and it's completely acceptable until it affects our souls. Eventually, we feel the effects. Our bodies are spiritual. Which is why the first point is so critical in this journey of renewal that I want to give you. And it's a little long and wordy, and I, I rewrote this about five times and couldn't figure out a better way to say this. So I'm just going to give it to you like the last way that I did it. And it's this. That the soul is renewed by activating your body's role with the soul. I know it rhymes too and I don't like that. But <laughs> The soul is renewed by activating your body's role with the soul. By activating. Your soul is renewed when you activate your body and understand its role in conjunction with your soul. That's an important thing for us to understand. Your soul is renewed when you understand that this physical body you have plays a role in making that renewal possible. Let me just take you back to something. Um, 
the first couple of weeks we talked about the anatomy of a soul, and there's this image that we looked at that is uh, given to us through John Ortberg and Dallas Willard, and I just want you to look at this again. We talked about this being the makeup of humanity, that we have a will, we have our mind, we have our body, and our soul. And the whole idea is that when we talk about the soul, it is this composite of all of these things, your mind and your body and your will, it's a composite that is included in the soul, your body. We've already talked about this. The anatomy says your body is a part of this configuration. This is revolutionary thinking. This is, this is thinking that, that relates to renewal in our souls when we understand it. I just want you to look back at a proverb we looked at last week, Proverbs chapter 4. Um, you don't have to turn there unless you want to, but it'll be on the screen. Proverbs chapter 4, listen to, listen to what the writer says here. In verse 23 of, of chapter 4, he says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Keep your mouth free of perversity and keep corrupt talk from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead, fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths for your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. Now, the first thing you have to understand is that the Hebrew language and, and the Hebrew writers often used poetic imagery, which is the case here. When he says, guard your heart, he's obviously not speaking about the biological heart, right? He's not talking about physically guarding your heart. In fact, the word he uses in Hebrew is the lemma, guard your lemma, which in the Hebrew language was a reference to the soul. It meant your inner man. So the writer says, guard your inner man. We talked about this last week. But then I want you to see this, because there's this ironic revelation buried in this. The inner man or the soul is affected by what we normally consider or call external realities. Look at verse 24, he talks about the mouth, the words that you say, the things that you talk about. In verse 25, the eyes, the things you see. In verse 26, he talks about where you go, the places your feet take you. All of these things, what you're seeing, what you're saying, where you're going, all of those things, he says, are a part of guarding your heart. Why? Because the body is spiritual. And the things that you do, the things that you say, the things that you speak, the, the, the ones that you listen to, the images that you look at, the places that you go, all of those things have an effect on the health of your soul. Your body is not neutral. Your body is not just a shell. Paul is writing to another group of people, very similar cultural moment for this other group of people living in a similar culture to Rome in a city called Corinth. In a letter that's titled 1 Corinthians he writes these words in chapter 6. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, and I love this last part, honor God with your body. Because your body is a temple. You see that there's this thing happening in Christianity with Jesus, that there's this merging of the spiritual with the body, that your body makes a connection here. 
This idea, this dualism that existed prior to this and then exists now in our culture, this idea where either the body and the spirit are in conflict with each other or that they're neutral with each other, that's actually rooted in pagan culture. That's actually rooted in pagan religion. This idea that human beings could go do whatever they want, they could engage any sort of pleasure, you could do whatever you wanted, indulge yourself during the week, but then you would show up on a particular day and then you would worship the gods and you would offer sacrifices to the gods. That idea is completely pagan. When Jesus arrives on the scene and the apostles begin to write, they begin to merge these two worlds and they say everything is connected. Your body is spiritual. It's a revolutionary idea. This dualism is eliminated and now your body actually matters. So this body that occupies space and eats and rests and engages in various activities, it matters. This is why um, St. Benedict, when he was forming his monastic society, there was a rule of life that he gave his monks. And when he gave his monks the rule of life, it involved moderation. He was very vocal about this. That they weren't to be extreme on any end of the spectrum, and he included the physicality of their lives. The food that they ate. They didn't eat too much, but they also didn't fast too much. Their daily schedule involved specific physical activities because he understood the intertwined nature of who we are. The body matters. So, renewing the soul means that your body, you activate your body to become a participant in what's going on. So, maybe today, a nap is exactly what you need. Right? But when you get up, you may also need to go for a walk. Right? There's some connection there. Maybe there's words you've been saying. Maybe there's stuff you've been ranting about. Maybe there's things that you're just angry about and so you've just been spewing words, you know, maybe just at the TV or maybe in the shower by yourself when you're mad at someone else. But maybe those words that you've been spewing need to change. Maybe there are things that you've been taking in with your eyes. There's images. There's stuff that you've just been absorbing because you thought, well, it doesn't really matter. But it actually does matter, and it's disintegrating your soul. Maybe there are places that you're going. There's habits that you have, and those habits are slowly tearing down the fabric of who you are. Those things need to change because your body matters. You with me on this? All right, next one. Let's go back to Romans 12, point two. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now listen to verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I want you to just notice something here in Romans chapter 12. Maybe you already picked up on this. We talk about the soul being this composite of the body, the mind, and the will. If you notice in these first two verses, you have the body, you have the mind, and then you have the will. Paul is telling these soul-worn people to no longer be conformed to the pattern of this world, but, but to be transformed by the renewing of their mind. He starts with the body, and now he moves to the mind. In fact, there's a little play on words that he's using here that I think is really interesting. He uses this Greek word that speaks specifically to being shaped or formed by an outside force. Now, um, I'm going to use an illustration that usually is applied to God's shaping of us, but I just want you to think about culture in this way. It's like clay on a potter's wheel. You just sort of spin through your life. You know, you get up and do your thing, and you keep running through your days, and you keep moving, and culture around us conforms us. 
It's like hands pressing in on the clay. It shapes us. You have no control over what it's doing. It is in control, and you're just spinning. Sound like life for a lot of us? Maybe just a little bit, right? The other word he uses is the word transformed or metamorphosis. There's a transformation. There's a radical change. So you are either conformed, you are either going to continue to operate in a space where culture is just shaping you and forming you and manipulating you, or you need to experience a transformation in your thinking. In your mind, something fundamentally needs to shift. Which means this, the second thing I want to give you is that the soul is renewed through the renewing of the mind, the rewiring of our mind. When your mind is rewired, your soul is renewed. Because what he's saying is this, there's a pattern that the world follows. There's a wiring diagram. There's a formula that the world is following. And that wiring diagram, that formula that is being followed will keep you in a place of distraction or disintegration or both. That's what it does. There's a way that the world thinks about things, and that thinking in us has to change. It's a part of our worldview. I'm just going to dive a little deeper into what's happening in our culture right now just for a moment. Um, John Wesley, uh, who led a massive, massive revival, uh, renewal in the Church of England, is credited with a certain way of thinking about life. It's actually called the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. And uh, you don't have to write that down, but the Wesleyan Quadrilateral is, um, is a way of thinking about life. It's a way of thinking about authority. It's a way of thinking about how you determine what is true or right or what direction you should go. And so these are prioritized. In the Wesleyan Quadrilateral, um, you begin with Scripture. And the question really you might be asking is, well, what does God say about this? That has ultimate authority. Then you move to, to tradition. Well, what have all the church fathers said about this? What have other people said about this? What does history say about whatever this is? Then you move to reason. Okay, I got God's view and I got tradition's view. And then you go, now what do I think about this? What do I think? And then experience. Um, the question you ask for experience is, what was that? Right? You experience something and you go, what was that? Let me try to define that. So, so that's the way that, that certain people viewed, and especially during the Wesleyan revivals, that's the way people began to think. That scripture had authority, then tradition, then reason, then our experience. In this post-enlightenment age that we live in today, something has happened, and the Wesleyan quadrilateral has been reversed. And now we have a cultural quadrilateral that looks like this. It's exactly the opposite. Now, experience trumps everything else. Then reason, then tradition, then possibly scripture. Let me talk about this for a second. Experience. You've heard somebody say, or maybe you've said it yourself, well, that may be true for you, but in my experience, that may be what you believe, but my experience says this. That may be true for you, but... When we start with experience, we start by saying, whatever I have encountered, whatever I, I'm going to begin with that. And my experience is the ultimate authority. Then we move to reason. Let me just think about that. So I had this experience. Now let me think about what that experience meant. Let me try to make meaning out of whatever the experience was. And so we reason and we try to think about it. Then we say things to people like, you know, I've been thinking about this for a while. And you say, oh, really, have you? This is what's fascinating for me. In our culture today, there's this moment when people wake up and they discover that other people have been thinking about what they're thinking about for hundreds of years. 
and they're genuinely shocked, right? Like, I can't believe anybody has actually thought about this. I thought I was the only one. Well, that's because you've moved from your experience to your reasoning, and now you're starting to move to tradition, and you see that maybe some other people went before you down this road, and they actually know a thing or two about this, but that leads them to tradition. Now, in our culture today, this reversal exists in the church because it ends in Scripture. Outside of the church, we may not end in Scripture. It may just be that these three, this is how you do it. So it's my experience, it's my reason, and then it might be I look at history to see what it says. In the church, we still reverse it. And what we do with the Scriptures is we say, well, I'm going to go to the Bible, and I'm going to pick the Scriptures, I'm going to pick the truths that seem to confirm the tradition that I want to align with that makes sense to my reasoning that validate my experience. We reverse it. So what Paul is exposing us to is this idea that culture is shaping, it's conforming, it's molding, it's making us think things that are true that aren't. And the renewal happens when we begin to rewire our thinking. We begin to rethink about how we think. That's what he means when he says renew your mind. Do you think in a way that allows God's truth to be the primary source of truth or is it your experience? Does that make sense? Are you with me? That's number two. Now, um, final one, number three. You probably guessed this has something to do with the will, and it does. Um, the soul is renewed through reshaping the will. And I just want you to read again verse uh, 1 and 2 of Romans 12. He says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So we have the body. Then he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We have the body, we have the mind. And then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now we come to the topic of the will. And there's this progression that you see being presented by Paul. You have the body, you have the mind, and then you have the will. You engage the body, you engage the mind, and then watch what happens to your will. Notice that he says, at the end of all this, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. By the way, um, do you want to know what one of the most asked questions has been of me in 25 years of ministry? How do I know God's will for my life? I just want to point everybody to Romans 12 and say, it actually says you will be able to test and approve God's will. We're going to get more to that in a moment, but first let me just talk about the will. God's will, the will, what is the will? How do you find, define the will? Well, the will is about what you want. The will is about what you desire. It's about what you crave. This is why we talk about willpower. Willpower is this idea that you have control over your cravings, right? That something arises and you desire it, but then based on your willpower, you can resist whatever that craving might be. So the willpower is your capacity to say no to what you desire. Um, there have been, in, in my freezer since Christmas, there have been three small containers of ice cream placed there by the devil. <clears throat> it was actually my children, but I think they were instruments of the devil in that moment. They bought them and then left them there, but um, I haven't touched them for weeks. I have not touched them. And then a couple of days ago, I was sitting on the couch, it was late at night. And I suddenly, like, they, they called to memory. You know, they were there. And I realized they're probably getting frostbitten. The ice cream's going bad. It was like, like some sort of, like, environmental crisis for me. And I was like, somebody has to do something about that. 
And so I went downstairs and I opened the freezer and I pulled them out and I'm scooping three different kinds. I'm making this mixture, this concoction. You know, I'm doing this, this entire thing. I lacked the willpower to stop myself, right? In fact, I, I ate I, the last bite. I literally shamed myself. I knew that the last bite should not go in just for principle. And I was like, no, at this point, who cares, right? You just take it down. And I realized, like, my willpower is weak, right? My desire to not eat ice cream, it's not very good. My desire to eat ice cream is obviously greater than my desire to see a six-pack on me, right? Which I gave up on that a long time ago, which is maybe why I give in to ice cream, right? Are you with me on this? Like, what's the point? I'm never going to get there again. So the will is about what we want, what we desire, but how do we want what we want? How do we want what we want? Where do these cravings come from? You ever thought about this? How do you even define a craving? Where did that start? Did someone plant this as an inception? Did someone make you think that you wanted these things? Where does a craving come from? Try to articulate sometime what a craving is, what a desire is. It's almost, it's almost impossible to define. We just use the word crave and we go, yep, no, I know exactly what you mean. It's strange, it's hard to place, but it's there. Now this is going to be bad news for some of you. What you crave, what you want, is actually determined by inputs. It's determined by stimulus. It's determined by habits. It's determined by patterns or rituals. All of those things, the inputs, the patterns, the rituals, the habits, they form a sort of architecture for your will, and your will follows those things. I, I love this eye-opening quote from Mark Sayers. He says this, and this is so not encouraging. He says, we view ourselves as spontaneous, yet we are easily shaped by simple cues and basic psychological tricks manipulated by those who are able to hijack our habits. See, the reason I want ice cream late at night sitting on the couch and my will is low is that for years I had a pattern that late at night sitting on the couch while the TV was on, I grabbed a bowl of ice cream. There's a reason that something sets off the craving. There was a stimulus, there was something, and now there's this desire that rises up inside of me. And what Paul is contending for is the reshaping of our will by the reforming of our internal architecture. New habits, new rituals, new stimulus. But we're going to dive more into that next week and look at the positive. How do we grow out of a place of renewal towards a positive future? We're going to do that and talk about habits. But let's go back to what Paul's saying in Romans chapter 12. If you actively engage your body and you transform the way you think, he says, you will discover the will, the desires of God. In other words, you start to see what God wants. And when you see what God wants, his good and perfect and pleasing, when you see that it's good, when you see that it's perfect, when you see that it's pleasing, when you do this, when your body is engaged and your mind is transformed, you will begin to see what's good and what's pleasing, and you will want what God wants. That's how the will is redetermined. That's how the will is changed. Which, by the way, this all takes us back to the very beginning. I'll, I'll close with this. Um, Paul begins this entire endeavor in Romans chapter 12 by saying this, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, think about how you use your body and change the way you use your mind and discover the will of God. 
in view of God's mercy, another way that you might say this is he's saying, hey, when you sit back and you consider all that God has shown you, his love and his grace, his mercy, when you see that he has great hopes for you and then he wants nothing but the best for you, when you have that in view, when you know God's grace, in view of that, say, you know what? I think I might start doing some different things with my body. And I might want to trust his truth over my experience. And I might want to lean in to what he desires and make his desires my desires. Amen? Amen. We're going to close a little differently today. And uh, in just a moment, um, Ron's going to come out. He's going to sing a song that he wrote. It's really good. It's going to be a little different. You're going to sit back. You're going to rest your body. You're going to take something in with your eyes and your ears. And I hope it ministers to your soul because we need a little bit of soul. You know what I mean? Um, and I'm going to pray for us before we do that. But I just want you to just soak this next moment or two in. Would you pray with me? Jesus, this morning in this space, there's a reorienting truth that's been delivered through Romans. There's a pattern, there's a system, there's a way of doing things, a worldview that we seldom think about. We don't open our eyes, we don't start our day just immediately thinking about what our worldview is. We just sort of live in this space. And I truly believe your word is a loving message that will just shake us up, wake us up, and bring us to a place where we can actually see the life that you have for us. So Lord, I pray that you'd give us courage to lean into this. That if there's things that we know that relate to our bodies, if there's things that relate to our minds, even our desires, Lord, I pray that we would be honest people before you. Transparent, honest, and then open to let you change those things. Lord, we love you. And we pray this in your name. Amen. This world 